Yeah, I think for Patina, it's fake. I, I think that the greater argument is whether you like fake things or not. Some watches look great. If the color beige looks good on the dial, then sure, I mean, it's a nice color. Just don't put the entire Patina argument. Leave it out of it and you just say it's a pretty color that goes with the theme of the watch, then that's great. But if you say, oh, you know, it looks old, but just because it's beige, that's weird. I mean, so yeah, either go all the way or just leave the, uh, the, the Patina side out of it, I think. On this week's show, we're joined by Rob from WatchPro. We talk faux patina, Seiko, and the latest release from Omega. Meanwhile, we hear about Ariel sleeping with the enemy, Rob sleeping with the Oris bear, and how both of them might soon be sleeping with the fishes. Enjoy the show! Greetings, and welcome to this week's A Blog to Watch Weekly. We are joined by the pyjama quad, Rob Corder from WatchPro, who is sitting in his bed sit somewhere. He's supposed to be in Dubai. Mansion, not bed sit, come on. Mansion, mansion, of course it is. As an editor of a watch magazine, it's obviously absolutely loaded. <laughs> sitting in his Oris pyjama top. I don't actually know anyone, Rob, who got one of these and decided to wear it themselves. Most folk got them and gave them away. Did you just get Did you like, get a bag load of these from, uh, from the show? I got it at Watches and Wonders, and it's been my pajama top ever since. Uh, you look magnificent, if I dare say so myself. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Great stuff. I think it probably was the most popular giveaway at the show. Ariel, David, did you both get some uh, Oris Bear jumpers? I never got my size, so I can't uh, represent like that, but uh, I do remember that. But, I mean, there's a lot of Oris stuff. I've been offered, like, an actual life-size Oris Bear, and I just don't know <laughs> what, what I would do with it. <laughs> is that like the sort of thing that you kind of uh, uh, in a dark corner somewhere in Geneva somebody comes up to you taps you and sort of go oi oi Ariel you want you want a bear you want a bear I mean it's basically like a giant lawn ornament if you think about it right yeah <laughs> airlines love that stuff especially yeah. it, it, Geneva airport is all for like human sized bears of course I, I did want to know as to who because we were all at uh, Geneva watch days did anyone have any difficulty getting the MBNF thing that sets fire to itself toy through airport this was a little like flintlock type machine that you wound up and as it drove along the carpet it no, probably set no fire to everything on its way no <laughs> difficulty <laughs> no i did get a bit of a surprise when i said i thought what does this do as i'm sitting in my hotel room with the shag pile carpet i thought i'll just put it on the floor I thought, oh, wait a minute it's it's trying to set fire to everything oh there we wow. go so yeah there are some there are some gifts or two that the watch media do tend do tend to take away there there was one year when somebody was giving out a like a, a battery like a phone battery and it was like a very low quality one and they actually started to explode and overheat so there was one company that was literally giving away exploding <laughs> phone batteries <laughs> Rob has disappeared from the conversation for some reason. Let's see if he returns. He got fed up with us. He's getting changed. You've made too much fun <laughs> of it. Right. <laughs> Is there like a term for like being against bears? Like bearist? Bearophobia. So Ro Rob just disappeared from the call there, apparently to go and get changed out of his yes, pajama right. top because he was taking too much abuse. So welcome back to the show, Rob. Now, now supporting a nice set of silk pajamas, I see you've changed out of the... Uh, <laughs> The, the, the yeah, bear top. Exactly. So, Rob, obviously, one of your big focuses on the magazine is to do with the industry. 
and the industry and world economics in general is nothing but interesting at the moment. What are your current observations? I mean, one or two articles recently pointing out just what's been happening. Some people doing really well by all accounts, although that must be that they're reporting on sales from a year ago. And some people distinctly worried about what is coming. What's your kind of assessment of the situation? The headline story is just the continuing rise and rise of the, of the United States. The, the market in America is just absolutely red hot. Growth year on year, if you look at the Swiss export numbers, is well above 20%. And last year was, was a record year anyway. Last year was the year that America overtook China and Hong Kong to be the biggest market. And we're seeing a con- continuation of, of that now. China's coming, actually coming back Fairly, fairly well, although from a weaker position than you would normally expect last year. Hong Kong, I think, is the is the big issue. Hong Kong is a huge market for Chinese tourists who who aren't necessarily travelling. It's a big re-export market, and, and what we're seeing is re- real weakness in Hong Kong compared compared to to previous years. And I think that I think that's that's ending up with higher amounts of of stock going to Western markets, particularly the United States. But if I look at the UK where I am at the moment, that's been pretty strong as well in the low double digits year on year. So overall, the Swiss watch industry, I think, is going to be delighted with where they are. I think last year was their best year ever. This year looks like it's going to be at least 10% up from there. So 23 billion could could become 25 billion quite quite easily this year. So it's strong. There are trends within that, which is that the volume of watches is continuing to to decline. So it's the price, you know, it's the rising price of watches and um, uh, more precious metals, more complications, just higher prices across the board that are that are causing uh, mo- most of that growth, rather than actually more more watches going onto wrists. But um, it, it all paints a, a healthy picture at the moment. We're we're holding our breath, I suppose, to see what's the sort of global or country by country recessions that we we're either in or could be going into in the next quarter or two we're waiting to see what ha- what happens there but it's certainly if there is a recession it's going to be off the back of a very strong couple of years in western markets what do you suppose the lag is between what's reported and how the local economic conditions actually affect that i mean are we effectively seeing good news from a year ago or three months ago, and it will actually take six months of a recession for these numbers to change? Or is it pretty knee-jerk that as soon as there's economic problems, these numbers start to fall immediately? There's always a lag between the Swiss watch export numbers, which is watches going into wholesale effectively, and retail figures. Not all countries around the world have reliable retail figures. The best that we have here in the UK from, from GFK is perhaps demonstrating what your, what your question is about. So I've got the latest numbers for August and for the year up to August, first eight, eight months of the year. And, and the UK has actually, in value terms, seen very little growth, in fact, zero growth for the last few months. And that's despite the monthly Swiss watch export numbers being up solid double digits. So there is a sign of a slowdown here. I mean, the UK is not technically in a recession, but it's just, you know, it, pretty pretty close, cost of living crisis, yeah. uh, inflation, et cetera, et cetera. But the retailers that I speak to continue to be optimistic, particularly at the, the luxury 
end of the market, they're expecting a, a decent fourth quarter, I think. And Ariel, what Rob's saying about America and the growth there and it now being the biggest market, do you see that? Like, is it obvious to you on the ground from what you hear from the watch brands and just the amount of buyers and just the chat that America is now just the place to go and the place to sell for watch retailers? Yeah, it's an interesting conversation. And I would agree that America has returned to being the most important watch market, not because America has grown particularly, but because most other markets have precipitously gone down. And then America sort of regains the top position by default. There are a lot of highlights. A lot of retailers in America are investing heavily. New retail uh, locations, store upgrades, more brands, better staff. I think that American watch retail over the last several years has made it a distinct mission to be better at what they do. And I think that they're a lot stronger today. They all have uh, ways to go. But from a sort of standpoint of, of being able to handle consumer demand and sell the consumers, uh, America is in a very, very good position, as are some of the top cities uh, around the world. So that is a plus side. I have been hearing a lot of chatter um, that demand is very, very soft right now. So there were periods of time where demand were very high. And what people do when demand is high is they invest in inventory because they assume that demand is going to stay high. And I understand that. But because we had a relatively quick an abrupt turnaround economically. Very quickly, you know, we had things like inflation going up, interest rates changing, going up, continuing energy issues and, and high utility costs and things like that. It is just all the, the wrong situation for people buying watches. So I think that we're going to have a period of time where there's going to be some highlights and there's always going to be wealthy people buying stuff. The market over the next 12 months is going to be very different than the market over the last 12 months and is not really sure what it's going to look like. But it is probably clear that over the next at least five or six years, America is going to be the dominant market when it comes to the sale of watches around the world. How much, how much, uh, Ariel, how much do, they, do people look at their, their 401k and think, you know, the stock market is down? Do they, do they feel immediately poor? It's not really a thing. Yes. In- in Europe, they don't, you know, people don't look at their people pension. obsessively. People, there's people that look at their their stock values multiple times a day. Right. It is a very common thing to feel on a sort of like hour by hour basis what I'm worth. It's not everyone, but there's sensitivity, right? Because people have like those investors in their life, and those people are the ones that sort of create the good mood around spending. Like, oh, so-and-so is spending? Well, I guess things are going good. I'm going to spend. Oh, wait a minute. So-and-so isn't spending? Well, I guess I should take that into consideration. So people are very influenced on uh, about what they think is going to happen tomorrow. And people believe money will be good tomorrow. They spend very freely. And when they're concerned about resource availability tomorrow, they tend to hoard. And that means that they spend you know less on uh, disposable income luxuries like watches. Mm. Does anyone produce any figures, Rob, that indicates the number of buyers, like the size of the customer base, uh, on the basis that, for example, you may buy more than one watch a year. So is the market actually growing or is it that more people are buying more than one watch? You know, we're talking about how maybe at the entry level, that's where it's going to suffer at the lower value end. Mm -hmm. So are we just seeing more rich people buy more watches per person and so technically the market's actually contracting because eventually these people are going to get fed up buying watches and move on to something else whiskey or cigars or cars or something yeah i mean the the contraction is in the units rather than in the value of watches which tends to suggest that it's people buying more than one watch either the wealthy 
buying buying more watches. And there's certainly I've had conversations with big multiple retailers who are very focused on getting their existing customers to buy more watches rather than finding new customers to to sort of bring into the top of the funnel. I mean, I think that that's uh, a long term risk to the industry, but probably short term is the is the right, is the right strategy because turning somebody from a, an enthusiast to a collector not only means they're going to buy more watches, it almost inevitably means they're going to buy more expensive watches as as well. So I think that's what that's what we're seeing at the moment. And you can see data that supports that in the Swiss watch export numbers and, and the GFK numbers here for, for the UK in that the volume of watches is has been in, in long-term decline, actually, whereas the, the value has been rising because the average price paid for, for a watch is rising. But just to, to pick up on on something that Ariel was talking about, the investment in, in retail, I totally agree that that's what we're we're seeing in, in America right now. And it's something we saw in, in the UK about five or six years ago. When the UK voted to leave the EU, the, the pound tanked uh, and the UK suddenly became a very, very cheap place to buy watches if you were in a, yeah. you know, a dollar-based economy uh, or even a, a euro based economy so so basically anywhere else <laughs> pretty much yeah I mean, and, and the overseas visitors flooded in uh, and it was almost the making of groups like watches of switzerland because particularly with you know central london tourist hotspots or or, or edinburgh york these sorts of uh, tourist tourist destinations they were just flooded with Middle Eastern tourists, Chinese tourists, even American tourists, which, you know, Americans don't tend to travel to shop, in my experience, but they, they certainly were at that time. And the, and the huge boom they had in revenues was then invested heavily in, in upgrading and expanding their, uh, their, their stores. Um, so we're seeing the same thing in, in America now, and that starts to entrench, you know, the success that, that that's, is being seen in the relatively short term, the last couple of years, will build a much more solid foundation for, for the American markets. And I think that's something that's going to be sustainable, even through an economic downturn that, that I, I feel we're already in. Yeah, certainly. I related a story a couple of weeks ago of speaking to a store manager who was already starting to see American tourists come in and do the maths because of the crashing again. It seems to be a fairly regular thing in the UK at the moment that the pound tanks, you know, twice a year or something at the moment, but it was making it even more attractive for Americans to buy uh, watches in the UK. So we will watch this space and see what happens. Rob, have you got anything coming up analysis in the magazine or on the website that uh, folk are going to be able to get their teeth into. I do like uh, getting into some of the deep dive articles that you do on the market. Have you got any long form analysis on the way? Well, I think the, I think the piece that I would probably point to, I wrote a, a week ago, which was to do with the pound crashing. We had a, a mini budget over here in in the UK that went so bad was it went down <laughs> so badly with the markets that the the pound crashed from I think I don't know what it was that the day before the the, the mini budget I think it was about one dollar fifteen to the pound dropped to all, almost parity I I did some number crunching with the dollar at one oh five to the to the pound mm. and there was something like a twenty percent price advantage for Americans spending dollars in in the UK 
And that's going to get even better because another part of the mini budget that was not widely reported was that they're reintroducing the ability for overseas shoppers to get their VAT back, which is 20% here in the, in the UK. So if you come over and spend £10,000, that's only costing you $10,000 and you're going to get $2,000 of it back. So, I mean, I, I think I did some number crunching and said that you could pretty much fly first class over here, buy a $10,000 watch, fly fly back again, and you're still going to be better off than, than spending in, in the American market. Yes, there were some screams of delight heard coming from Duffy Towers at Watches of Switzerland. I did a column saying that Brian Duffy could have written that budget for <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, I think you probably did because... By the looks of it, the government haven't got anybody else sensible to speak to. But anyway, that's uh, let's not get too political. Anyway, <laughs> so let's move on and talk about some articles on a blog to watch. Speaking about people buying more than one watch and something else that's been quite a market maker in the past few years has been retro and reissues. Jake has written an article, one of these kind of Monday articles, David wrote one. Did you write last week's, David? Yeah, I think I did. I mean, Was it the week before? Oh, oh, yeah, maybe the week before. So this week's, in order to try and basically wind everybody up, is about faux patina. And is faux patina basically a good thing, a bad thing? Are vintage reissues a good thing, a bad thing? Are we all just fed up? I need to move on. I need some originality. David, have you had a look at this? What do you think of Jake's argument? Yeah, I think for Patina, well, I mean, it's fake. I, I think that the greater argument is whether you like <laughs> fake things or not, <laughs> you know? And White and sand drawn. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, some watches look great. If, if if the color beige looks good on the dial, then sure. I mean, it's a, it's a nice color. Just don't put the fake or Patina argument or, or the entire Patina argument. If you leave, leave it out of it and you just say it's a pretty color that goes with the theme of the watch, then that's great. But if you say, oh, you know, it looks old, but just because it's beige, that's weird. I mean, companies like Maidvorn, for example, and some others who go ahead and, and put tremendous effort into making something look as though it's been through hell for decades, basically. And you buy it brand new, and they buy it brand new, but they just make it look look old. I think that's technically fake patina because it's not, you know, uh, grown through years and, and decades of, of, of action and experience and whatever. But at the same time, it looks cool, and you get you get to have a product that looks as though it has done that. So yeah, either go all the way or just leave the uh, the, the patina side out of it. I think. Is there any other luxury product whereby you want it to look older and more beaten up than it actually is? Hmm. I think it happens with with clothes and and maybe even bags and stuff. I think it and and shoes for sure. Yes. Even luxury shoes. Don't forget architecture. Oh, really? People go to great lengths to build new structures that look like they have personality. They buy reclaimed wood, hmm. this and that. It's very popular in architecture to build a brand new house that has an aged look to it. It's very, it's, hmm. it's not every single house, but it's very common. It is the problem then that the brands call it faux patina and vintage reissue that actually they just produced it as a as David says, as beige, then you would just decide whether you liked beige or not. <laughs> yeah, isn't it? I think part of David's point is that it's the outcome which is important. If it looks like you're going for something old and it just ends up looking like weird, then it's not successful. And you're like, I don't want to spend luxury money for something isn't successful. But when it creates a complete illusion and your brain doesn't necessarily know the difference, it's sort of like when you see a really good fake watch. You're like, I know it's fake, but like, wow, they did a really good job. I wouldn't know it the other way. So it enters the realm of art 
and sort of sort of performance rather than just tool. And I think that there's there's a lot of appreciation for that in the enthusiast community. Of course, there's going to be those people like just like tools and the idea that doesn't look like it's brand new. It's crazy. But I mean, look at these people that sort of fetishize this notion of patina. Why are they so obsessed with old things? It's because there's a nice look to it. It's so if we can replicate that nice look for whatever reason that looks nice, but if we can replicate that in an authentic looking way that feels satisfying, well, then why not? But who actually ever sees it? I mean, I can understand making a strap look distressed and old because actually somebody else can see that and appreciate who's not into watches from across the room. The fact that the loom is a slightly different color, I mean, you would have to be sitting on top of the person to actually see that or be real, you know, it would need to be a, an event that you were going that folk would be looking at your watch. The idea that in daily wear that someone's going to appreciate the aged look of your loom just seems slightly ridiculous. You know, I can understand that owner might appreciate it, but, you know, I think maybe we as watch geeks think that people appreciate our things from a distance a bit more than they actually do mostly what we were wearing at risk was completely unnoticed by the general public and if they asked and inquired about your watch they'd have no idea whether it was expensive or cheap unless it had the name rolex in the front of it which had some sort of more general market recognition i just think it's I, it feels like it's just become one of these watch geek hills to die on or oh, i've got to have an <laughs> opinion about patina when actually it's kind of largely irrelevant it's just you you do you the, the opinion is just is just from the people that don't like it right so i think <laughs> of Laco, for example that has herb Struk, where they have some person in-house that does the hand aging like they don't go to all that trouble because no one wants this like there is a demand for this but as it is on the internet it's the negative opinion which seems to be the most vocal because very few people tend to give the positive reviews. P very few people are like, I love this. I love that. That's all you'd be doing all day long. But it's a lot easier to go and just to identify the things you don't like. And so what ends up happening is most of the feedback is on things people don't like. And then it creates this question like, oh, is there a problem with this? No, there's just a couple of people that don't like it and they can ignore it. There's more products out there that don't look like they have a fake patina than do. Why are you so offended by the few ones that come out there? It just goes back to what we always talk about. People get offended when not every single product in the category is for them. So <laughs> Rob, full patina or date window at 4.30, which is more offensive? <laughs> Neither. I'm with, I'm with Ariel. There's nothing to be offended by. I've got a bronze watch, which aged almost instantaneously <laughs> after a couple of weeks, but the dial looked incredibly bright. But at the same time, you know, when you look at how popular tropical dials are in the auction market, you can see why new watches are kind of being made that, that try and replicate that in some way. So yeah, not a hill I'm prepared to die on, but um, yeah, I, I like both. There are a couple of interesting comments on the article, so it's very much worth a read and to join in with what's going on in the comment section. So do go and check out the article. Go and cross swords on the website and check out that article. So Ariel has followed up on the launch of the new Apple Watch. What, uh, what version of the Apple Watch is this we're now on? Series 8. Series 8 and has done an article about sleeping with it. So this is what I'm colloquially calling sleeping with the enemy. Great Julia Roberts film circa, oh, when was that? 19, the 90s? Maybe it was the 80s. Who knows? Anyway, Ariel, how did you get on sleeping with Apple? <laughs> well... <laughs> Look, this was actually a funny thing. I didn't know what else to call it. I'm literally sleeping while wearing the watch. 
it's not something I normally do. And I was doing it to test the sleep tracking functionality that came out like two versions ago. A new part of that functionality came out called sleep phase tracking, which tries to estimate like your REM sleep and deep sleep and, you know, all that stuff. And I'd never done this before. And I have some people who have like sworn to me about like, oh, this, you know, I'm wearing this bracelet or this ring or this, you know, sleep tracking thing on my watch. And now I'm told when to go to bed and I'm sleeping more or something like that. And I was just curious. And I wanted to know what it would do. One of the biggest questions I had was, does the watch know when you're sleeping? Like, I actually thought about it from a from a technological perspective. That would be really something if we had a device that somehow is able to read whether or not a person was sleeping, which, again, I just think is interesting. I don't know that you can do that. Turns out it sort of guesses whether or not you're sleeping. It doesn't really know. It looks at your temperature, your heart rate, your movement. So it makes a guess. And apparently it's a pretty good guess. But I, you know, I spent some time really in the worst possible time to wear it. I was traveling internationally. I was like not getting a lot of sleep. I just wanted to say if the thing would be like, sir, you're about to die. Seek immediate medical care. (laughs) And it didn't. And specifically, I was reading that the person who ran the project said people are stressed out as it is. Unlike the exercise thing where we're going to reward people for working out and kind of remind them that they should, when it comes to sleep, we're just going to leave them alone. If they're not getting enough sleep, they have other problems to worry about. So, so that's not even part of it. Yeah, I did wonder if the whole thing would be slightly stress-inducing. You must go to bed. A message comes up saying, it's a school night. Get to your bed. Well, it does say like... Feels like, your, you're, feels like you're 12. Your bedtime's coming up. It's time to wind down, which I just like summarily dismissed. It had the exact opposite reaction with me. I was like angry. I was like, how <laughs> dare you? tell me what to do. Uh, <laughs> it sends Rob a wee message to say, Rob... You get to wear your orish jumper. Bedtime is approaching. It just has a picture of the sweater on the dial. That's all he needs to see. And he knows, he knows what that means. It is pretty relaxing. But I mean, it, it seems to me that it's not so much about the quantity of sleep. So the watch telling you that you've got to go to sleep. But when it tells you that you've slept, that, you know, the quality of your sleep is bad. Well, that's got to be stressful, right? Because how, how on earth do you improve on the quality of your sleep? You're asleep, for God's sake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing. Well, here's the thing related to the quality of sleep. I found it very difficult to determine what strap to wear with this thing while I'm sleeping because you want to have something which, again, it has to like stay there for your heart rate. So it has to be somewhat snug, but it can't be too snug and it can't be abrasive or whatever. So I went through like five or six different straps. I found it (laughs) such a pain that, you know, the the normal kind of fluoroelastomer rubbery kind of one, you know, I was kind of like sweating underneath. So I found that wearing the Apple Watch actually had a negative effect on my quality of sleep. But that's that's just me. (laughs) It's the modern day equivalent of the princess and the pea story. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, maybe. Maybe, maybe. Well, Rob, can you can you just fall asleep with that thing on your wrist? I don't know. Maybe you have that talent. Yeah, I wear whatever watch I'm wearing. I just go to sleep in it. Really? Yeah. Okay. So you know, I, it's just one of those things where the, there's not one sleeping device right for everyone. There are some smart beds. So the whole bed, or there's like a, a, a top of the mattress that does it, so you don't have to mm. wear a watch. So there's multiple ways of tracking this, of course. I wear all my watches in bed, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I can't sleep. Okay. I, can't, I cannot get a moment of sleep unless I wear all my watches on one arm, actually. It's kind of like wearing a heavy blanket, right? It kind of is a little bit securing. Exactly. In, in certain parts of London, it's the only way to keep your watches safe is to take them all to bed. They would rob you in your sleep. Like, sir, would you wake up for me for a second? <laughs> it does strike me that this was somewhat 
stress inducing and then the analysis of waking up really quickly so as you can check how much great sleep you had <laughs> there we go i'd be interested to know if anyone's got any good stories about you know chucking the watch across the room or something going how dare it tell me that i only had that much good sleep or having a really active dream and it being registered somehow in your watch i play the drums and occasionally it will uh, you know in public and occasionally after playing the drums, it will give me an exercise completion. So just when you want everything to be silent, my watch beeps up because it tells you, oh yeah, well done for exercising when actually all I've done is just sit there. So I do wonder whether there's any things that this setting will accidentally do hmm. just because it thinks you're asleep when you're actually not. So if anyone's got any good stories, you know how to contact the show. It's podcasts at ablogtowatch.com. Ariel, you had a wee trip with Norcane. Rob, you've got some Watch for events coming up. We also had reports from the most recent Horology Forum done by Dubai Watch Week. Events seem to be very much back on the agenda. Uh, how was white water rafting or whatever you got up to this time, Ariel? Well, that was very nice with Norcane. That was related to a giveaway that we did. So that was an event that we were responsible for. So I guess when December comes around, go ahead and enter our, our, our great giveaway. Yes, events seem to be back. I think that the reason a lot of them are happening is that they're very they're very easy to agree to, right? Brands right now don't know what's happening in the future, don't really know what they need to do, know they need to do something. And events are kind of like popular and make people happy. So like, yes, let's go to an event. I'm not sure if everybody knows what to do at these events or there's a lot of clear objectives, but it's sort of, again, it's it, people go with marketing trends. Uh, it's, again, trendy to do events. People know that a lot of people go to them. I'd like to hear from Rob what he thinks brands should actually tr be trying to get out of all these events that they're doing. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely events season, as in press trips, press trip season. I'm away every single week for, I think, a seven-week seven run. It's, it's basically something that's been around for decades it's it's a jolly to to try and cheer up a journalist who's going to give you more more favorable coverage the best best ones actually you learn you know as a journalist you learn something rather than just having a good time and i, I was at uh, giro perigo last week in uh, la chaux de fond in, in switzerland and it was a sort of two-day immersion in giro perigo which is not a not a brand that gets a lot of attention normally it's it's outside the top 50 in terms of the biggest swiss watch brands but it's a it's a hot story at the moment because it was taken over it was bought there was a management buyout from caring the big fashion group that's uh, home to gucci it was bought bought out by the ceo patrick punio along with uh Ulysse nardan which again is another you know great historic uh, brand with, but not a, but not a huge one. So you've got this new player in town, effectively with watches that are centuries old. So it was actually an, an opportunity to talk to the people there and see the setup of the of the of the factory and how they're going to be rolling out products. And so that that one was really worthwhile. I've got another one coming up with Jacob and Co in Sicily because they're celebrating the 60th anniversary of the godfather movie i'll be there with you and they've made a great and they made this crazy what million dollar watch that plays the godfather theme tune i don't i'm not sure we're going to learn anything substantial on that on that trip but it sure looks fun as now you've got to be aware that as discussed last week about this bit of visit you know it might well be that it's only the two of you that are going and only one of you might return 
So <laughs> just make sure you have all your paperwork in order for those that are left behind at home, just in case, because, you know, these things really, can... Really these reassuring, things, yeah. <laughs> these things can get out of control. Ariel, you were discussing earlier on before we recorded about needing to get a new car. Look at it positively this way. If it all goes horribly pear-shaped for Jacob Co., you've solved it, but you don't need to worry about the car. Cars lease your problems. That is true. Yes, thank you for uh, reminding me of that, that you know... <laughs> All consumer research is futile at this point. Exactly. The Perigo trip would have helped you because we were test driving Aston Martin because they got a, par- a partnership with, with them. Yes. There you go, Ariel. There we go. <laughs> Get rid of your Audi. <laughs> Get an Aston Martin. Who cares about luggage? Luggage is irrelevant. Thing, I, need, I need something very fast, but that it can carry a bunch of stuff. I know. All the, in America, we have a lot of these It things. has at least a yeah, little yeah. bit of value retention. The Aston Martin SUV, that, which is the one I was driving, which is... Um, the DBX? I don't know. You love to... I'm not a not a car geek. <laughs> no, I've driven it. It's a good. It's it's fun. It's fun. Yeah, it's nice. Rob, you have your own events coming up. One particularly soon. I mean, we we launched uh, Watch Post Salon literally as we were coming out of the of the sort of lockdowns last year. So last uh, last November was the first Watch Post Salon. It's the UK's biggest luxury watch event with about 50 brands coming together in in london we host it in, in the newest five-star luxury hotel in london it's called the londoner on on leicester square from november the 11th to to the 12th and it, it was it was proved hugely popular last year and all the signs it's going to be even even bigger and busier this year so um yeah get your tickets so it's a ticketed event people need to buy tickets in advance we recommend that you buy tickets in advance and they are selling out fast but uh, if there are any left you will be able to rock up on the door and pay it's only it's 20 quid to get in on on the door so yeah you can go go either way but look get, go on watchpro.com look up watchpro salon get get your tickets now cool and horology forum which is just past this was dubai this is like kind of what happens in the off year from dubai watch week did it have much impact i've not seen a lot of reporting on it we've reported on it on the website is this just dubai watch week doing their thing that they've done for the last few years whenever they don't have the big show just to keep the public's imagination or the watch media's imagination and attention or can we see the folk at dubai watch week maybe pushing this brand a bit more and a bit more regularly throughout the year my editor Tracy Llewellyn went along to it and said it said it was really really interesting and uh, good people to uh, good people to speak to. Not necessarily not so much necessarily what was going on on stage, but you know ga- gathering people together so they can share stories. I think is all, is always a positive thing. Yeah, it struck me that it was a bit more of a kind of not secret meeting because obviously it was entirely public, but it struck me as being more about what happened away from the stage and all the meetings that it enabled to happen because it wasn't like a big watch show whereby everyone's got their diary full of appointments that actually it was very much a everyone gets to have a chat and brands can speak to each other and it could all be done quite on the on the lowdown because oh look we happen to be in the same place so let's have lunch yeah no i, I, no, I didn't don't have much to add to that i mean i think it's interesting that the dubai watch week is run by Siddiqui which is the biggest uh, authorized dealer for pretty much every luxury brand other than the Swatch Group ones in uh, in the Middle East based in uh, based in Dubai. So for them to be taking this on the road, which they which they've done before, they've held it in they've held the Horology Forum in in London before as well. It's it's an interesting move. Not sure what's in it for them other than keeping the interest alive in Dubai Watch Week, but yeah, why not just do Dubai Watch Week every year? They have a lot of demand, I think 
to do it. Like, you know, we've been to the Dubai Watch Week and we know like it's very popular for people to say like, you you know, your team is doing such a good job. You should take this elsewhere. And I think that they've listened to that and they wanted to do it. I know I don't know if they know exactly what to do with it now that they, you know, they, they, they move it around. They make it a social event. It's obviously positive for the Siddiqui name. You know, Siddiqui can't do business all over the world. So ultimately, unless you're going to their, you know, their markets and buying watches from them, they don't benefit by doing it in, in, uh, in a different country. It's true that there's a lot of people uh, from the Dubai area that go back and forth to London. So in a sense, there's sort of a lot of locals they can reach there. Uh, maybe they feel that that's the same way in New York. Uh, Los Angeles, of course, would have a lot of other people as well that travel to the Middle East on a regular basis and and probably do business with them. But you're, you know, Rob is correct in in that it's not necessarily clear what their business objectives are outside of the fact that they can afford to do it. It's very flattering to them, and there seems to be a demand for it. Went down quite well by all accounts. You can go and check out the article at a blog to watch. We have some watches to chat about, and first up, we have two sets of releases from Seiko, and we're going to try a new trick. So we have Seiko Pressage, inspired by Kabuki Theatre, and Seiko Prospects US Special Edition, inspired by Cave Diving. Now, I don't know, gents, if you've had a chance to look at these articles, but let's uh, do something we spoke about before, David. the pressage. Have a guess at how much these cost. Oh, let me look at them. Are these expensive or are they cheap? So without looking, let's have a guess at how much Seiko, because as we've discussed before, Seiko's pricing seems to be just yeah, made up random numbers it, quite often. So how much are these pressages? It's become a game. Like there's a new Seiko and is it is it five grand or is it, you know, seven fifty? Is it two thousand three hundred dollars? What is it? But, you know, I will stay true to Seiko values and say that these are no more than $1,500. Let's, let's, you know, fingers crossed. Okay, and Ariel, do you know what these are worth or do you want to have a guess at these pressages? I don't know the prices. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the $1,000 mark. But again, I'm just totally guessing at this point. <laughs> <laughs> and Rob, do you want to have a go at a guessing game? New Seiko pressages, how much? <laughs> Uh, I have to say, I was on holiday last week, so I wasn't on the news desk covering these watches. So I'm, you know, I think I'm, <laughs> I might part, pass on these ones. Other than to say that, you know, Seiko watches are their average price point is going up, up and up and up, and the value of the, you know, the value they're putting into their watches is, is improving as well. So I'm a fan, but I haven't actually seen this watch. Yeah. So these watches are both. Of you did well. Uh, just over a thousand dollars for the three hand and 1200 for the more complicated pressage. So the question then is, the Prospects divers, are they more expensive or less expensive? So higher or lower? Did you ever have that game show in the States? What was that called, Rob? Uh, Play your cards right. Play your cards right. Play your cards right, that's a yes. So higher or lower, are the Prospects more expensive or less expensive than lower, the pressage? Lower, I'm, I'm guessing is lower. Lower, David. Higher or lower? Uh, it should be lower. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and Rob, yeah. you need to have read the article. Higher yeah. or lower? Exactly. This is just on the turn of a card. I'm going lower. Okay, and the answer is higher. Fifteen hundred dollars. So there you go. So just to keep the game alive, that Seiko are just making up as a go along. Don't, don't, for, be... don't forget, since we've written about that, Seiko's come out with at least seven other watches. <laughs> this is true, and, and the pound has also crashed again. So these are now multi-million dollar watches to anyone that's buying them 
in the UK in, in, in groats. We're, we're, we're going back to the gold standard over here or just bartering from now on uh, just to keep us going. So yeah, uh, Seiko, let's, I mean, these are very nice watches. I suggest you go and check out the articles for all that we're joking about the price points. I do particularly, actually, I, I quite like them both. And for, the, you know, just over a thousand dollars, they actually represent some quite good value in the Seiko range. Uh, any particular favourites amongst these four watches? Would you rather a Presage or a Prospects? It's hard to ask because you know that like in five days will be a new option. <laughs> I mean, it's it's funny because with all these releases, Seiko has sort of trained people not to buy new Seikos, right? Because you need to sort of have the benefit of afterthought where you're like, okay, let me look at something from five years ago. I can see all the things that came out that year and get the one I want. Because right now, it's such a moving target. I don't know about other people, but I know that people feel very pissed off. They'll put down $1,500 or $3,000 for beautiful Seiko. And then like three weeks later, one comes out that they want marginally more. And then they actually feel like they want to go to their dealer and be like, hey, can I swap it back? Which, you know, chances are is not going to happen. I know that that's like a real fear that people have. And I don't I don't blame them, to be honest. Uh, I would much rather get the Psycho 5 mm, Sports, the Kosuke Kawamura that they did that was green and orange and had all these lines and busy bezel and all that. And that was $440. And th th those are selling for way more than that on the secondhand market. But, they, you know, maybe you can still hunt one of those down and, and find one. It's just strange that, you know, Psycho makes a watch for $1,500 and then you look at another one for $440, a third of the price. And it's way cooler and, and just much better to wear. So it's just all over the place, really. Genuinely, I know we joke about it, but do we genuinely think that Seiko have a problem with how they price their watches? Or is it just something that we as watch geeks observe and yeah. just go, because we know the full range, because we know just how many SKUs they produce that we point out, whereas actually your average consumer just sees what they like and they buy what they like and that's it. You know, are Seiko consistently putting roughly the same margin on top of what they produce or is it just all over the shop? I, I think that they don't believe that consumers are going to like sit there and, and look at all the various models. And so I think that maybe yesterday before people spent all this time like doing research, maybe. But today, I, I think your average consumer could do a little bit of research on Seiko, see it's all over the place. And I'm guessing not know what to make of it. I mean, we did have somebody, Pepe, on Instagram comment a few weeks ago, actually sent us a voice message about Seiko, about just how many units they were producing. It was something like, I don't know, 500. I'll try and find the voicemail message. Hello, Rick. Hello, guys. Pippi here. Always interested with um, different people's views on Seikos, even if most of you are wrong most of the time. <laughs> uh, my take of a bit of a Seiko geek is most of the new stuff is just awful, to be honest. I much prefer the vintage stuff, and it seems to offer a lot better value as well. Currently, Seiko just seem to keep throwing mud at the wall and seeing what sticks. Um, to give an example, in 2021, between Seiko and Grand Seiko, they released 474 new models, and 30% of those were limited editions. Or at least they called them limited editions, but in fact, some of them were in runs of multiple thousands, and a couple of cases over 10,000. Not limited in my book anyway. But what do I know? Seiko is a successful watch company and last time I checked I'm not. We have reported on these watches two entirely different types of watch from Seiko in the same week. Now I'm not sure that that's our fault. I think we've reported these basically when they've been released. I mean why not just pace yourself a little so that it's not a Seiko overload in, in one week. It's just strikes me as a bit strange. They released earlier tonight. I got 
an email first from Seiko about some new watches and then an email from Grand Seiko about another four new watches. Like <laughs> they have an addiction to releases right now. It's like it's almost hilarious. I mean, it's getting absurd. I, I don't want to criticize them because I don't know what they're thinking, but I know that like it's becoming the joke where it's like, you know, it's New Seiko Saturday. It's also New Seiko Sunday. Isn't it that they are a global brand? Like, they, you know, they know that something works here and there. And I mean, they, they are supplying, I don't know how many thousands, if not tens of thousands of points of sale. So it's not like we have to care about all of these. But I but I but I agree there are some overlaps. And if you end up in a, in a shopping mall in front of a Seiko window, I think, you know, I could imagine Psycho just hoping that you don't see the cool watch for 440 and you spend 1500 <laughs> right? So it's like, <laughs> well, I have $1,500 to buy a watch and here you go. It's virtually the same as, you know, the one for third of a price. But, you know, we're certainly happy that you're choosing the more expensive one. Consider yeah. this. Consider this. Seiko has a whole variety of movements, right? And they tend to sometimes price the watch based upon the movement, but it has like a fancier movement. And sometimes the distinction between their movements is so small that most like watch enthusiasts themselves have no freaking clue really what the differences are because they have some of the ba same basic specs and maybe one is more accurate than the other one, but Seiko doesn't exactly market it that way. So to the lay consumer that sees like all these various numbers and like, you know, mechanical watches and priced all the way from this to all the way up, I'm just thinking that you're like your lay person doesn't know what to do. So I'll, I'll give you an anecdote. So yesterday I was here in Los Angeles at the, the Luftgekult air-cooled Porsche car show, which is was incredible for watch spotting to be honest probably talk about this when we write our article <laughs> about it the most popular like sort of like you know watch enthusiast budget watch i saw was a seiko and it was a lot i would say that like upwards of 30 percent of the entire watches of the show were like mechanical seiko dive watches i saw wow. everything from like rowing blazers ones to this and that all over the place but it was like the watch to have and you know it was mostly in the seiko 5 sort of like price range you know it was under a certain level and so I wonder, you know, when Seiko tries to essentially sell to the same person at triple the price point, isn't that consumer going to be like, okay, maybe I can afford that, but tell me why Seiko. And I don't know that Seiko has done an amazing job of telling that whole massive generation of millions and millions of watch lovers out there who had very, who were very happy spending circa $500 on a Seiko that they now have to spend $1,500. Has Seiko done a good job of explaining that? And I'm not sure they have yet. Especially as you point out the way that Seiko treat their accuracy ratings, which is that they market it based on an accuracy that most folk would find who know anything about watches disturbing. And it's not because that's how accurate it is. They're much more accurate than they declare, but they just have this funny relationship with, you know, not with giving it cost certification or anything, but with competing on accuracy unless unless you're talking about spring drive, in which case accuracy is all you hear about. It's, it's weird, as you say, they do have this large range of movements and actually it's very difficult in most cases to distinguish one from another and because they seem to be pricing it based on the movement rather than the case you know they're big industrial manufacturer presumably once they tool up doesn't actually cost them that much more to make one steel sports watch over another the degree of hand finishing is all that really makes a yeah. difference so they're market segmenting by movement and yet people don't really understand the movements it's all a bit odd you talked about a Porsche event, uh, a brand, Tag Heuer, released something in this last 
week or so, which was also to do with poor Sean wrote an article on this. This was limited edition Tag Heuer Carrera Porsche RS 2.7. Did this have any part to play in the event that you were at, Ariel? I saw one of them there. Oh, wow. I quite like this. I think this is pretty cool looking, despite the fact that it's, it's all badged up as Carrera on the the strap that we report about it on the kind of NATO. And I'm not sure I'm quite on board with the Carrera logo down the side of the case. I see what they're doing. I see that they're trying to make it look like a badged up Porsche, which is fair enough. It's a Porsche, a Porsche, a Porsche collaboration. But I'm just not sure I'm quite into that. David, you're a car geek. What did you think? It's funny because I don't really see it as a car watch. I, I see, I, I like the, the the way that they've done the side of the case, that it's lacquered probably, and mm-hmm. that it's it's uh, uh, mimicking the uh, the sticker on the side of the cars, which is which is cool. But I can't get over that strap. I, I think it's it, it looks like a serious watch, but it's sold on that strap. I'm not sure if they are you know supplying other straps to go with the watch, but uh, these these woven straps to go on a watch that that costs more than five hundred dollars is just a big no for me. I, I know that you know you can buy another leather strap or something like that. That's nice, but I feel like they could have done better with the strap there. Yeah, there is a red leather. I assume it's leather and a bracelet that goes with this watch as well, and the gold version mm. has the Carrera etched on the side rather than whatever kind of labelling, or I'm not sure how it's done on the steel that stops it just peeling off like a transfer. But the gold one is pretty attractive. It's a bit unusual to have that kind of marking on the side of a case. I can't think of anyone else that does that, and yet at the same time it is quite a large piece of real estate for watch marketing so it's maybe surprising that nobody is known for it you know Panerai are known for their their big brand labeling on the rubber straps Ariel Rob with your extensive watch knowledge is there anyone else that puts the logo down the side of the watch case I'm struggling to think of one. Ariel, you ever come across anyway? It's quite an interesting... I mean, I, I don't necessarily like it on this, but it's an interesting idea that I've not seen executed anywhere else to actually, on the gold one on this, they've, they've uh, etched it in. Ariel, nobody, no micro-brand? Look, there, there, there has been instances. I mean, uh, maybe not the name of the model, but definitely the name of the brand. I mean, Norcane has a little plaque that says Norcane on the side. So this is not uncommon... Uh-huh. Uh, what, what what you're seeing here is just a direct graphic from the car, mm. right? A lot yeah. of the, the RS car that this is based on has this exact thing. You know, it's a, it's a nice application on there. I mean, I guess no one's done it quite like this as taken from the car on the side, but I wouldn't I wouldn't call it revolutionary. I definitely wouldn't wouldn't bet on its scratch resistance i'll tell you that so ariel tell us about the event that you were at as briefly mentioned you're also personally car shopping uh you weren't tempted by anything you saw uh, an april <laughs> porsche no no me me wanting to get a car is unrelated to go into this uh sort of vintage air-cooled Porsche event. That's all it was, was a whole variety of vintage air-cooled Porsches, mostly 911s. And that's, you know, that's really what the event was all about. It's 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 becoming like a scene. So it's not just for car lovers, but it's also for like, kind of like a, a men's place to be, to show off what you're wearing and bring your toys and stuff like that. And in that way, it's actually quite successful. They, they sell out, they sell merchandise there. Cars themselves are beautiful. No, no one's driving. I mean, these are the type of cars you, you drive down the street, something's, you know, something's going to happen to it and you have to fix it. So these are just, you know, these are some of the most, you know, beautiful, hard to maintain models in the world. You know, uh, a significant other is going to seem 
seems seem like a like a like a bargain uh, by comparison. And these events have just been getting more and more popular. The 9/11 I think is is incredible because today the new 9/11s do so well and the vintage ones will continue to do well. And I think that's really part of how people understand it. Why are people so crazy for these old cars because they're old versions of things that are still popular today. And you look at like Rolex, it's very similar. Old Submariners are really popular because today people still want new Submariners. Mm, mm. Land Rover Defender, the old ones are popular because they're sort of the new ones. And it's there are certain luxury things that have lasted that long that allows both old and new to be popular. And it's it's difficult to explain why. It's just sort of one of those things. And the cars are incredible. They are beautiful. You know, growing up as a, as a, as a car lover, there wasn't like all that much insanity around Porsche collecting. And then it just sort of became a thing several years ago and just got more and more and more. And I think what's interesting in it is that there's this whole classification of modified Porsches you can get from the, you know, there's all these aftermarket people. And I don't, I don't know that anywhere else there's such a dedicated group of just insane aftermarketers that will, you know, like Singer make you a better than better than original, you know, three, four hundred thousand uh, dollar nine eleven. And there's others that do go a completely different direction and modify the body and make them much more high performance and and all this crazy stuff. So it's it's really it's not really a product, it's really a community. And I think that's what's interesting about it. And was there anything in particular that was spectacular? You we, when we've spoken about the Mili Miglia before, well, show, Miglia. show part, show part, uh, so, yeah, sponsors. I forgot to say that. Yeah, so show part with the sponsor was every car followed by a tow truck. Uh, well, that's the thing. This was a, a static event, so the cars oh, were right. just sitting Easy. there. <laughs> yeah, that's cheating. Arrived on transporter and left on transporter. Well, that's the funny thing. Even though. Even though the cars weren't driving, there were still a lot of them that had the, the hoods up, you know, or like people looking at the engine. And I didn't think they were just admiring it. I think they were trying to fix things. <laughs> a bucket of oil underneath. <laughs> So what has everybody got coming up in the next week or so? Rob, you're about to head to the airport. Where are you off to? I am. I, I'm just off to Dubai, actually. To, that's where our head office is. So I'm rather, bo- rather boring budget meetings. That, but then I think it's the week after. It's the Sicily trip with, with Jacob and co, which should be fun. And yeah. me! And Ariel. Jacob and Ariel and co. We'll have to, bring, we'll have to wear our, yeah, our mobster attire. We'll have to get to... <laughs> Rob, I suggest you just get Ariel to try all your food. He can be your official food taster. So just food taster. Let, let him taste your food. I wanted you to be his consigliere. Hey. <laughs> I, I, I want to see the Blues Brothers outfits. So, yeah, the dark sunglasses and uh, the black suits. So, uh, imagine yeah. if, we get, if we get in trouble because we accidentally piss off actual mafia people. They're like, don't make fun just of us. Just invite please. them for the podcast. <laughs> I've been to Sicily before, and it's, the mafia is still a very real thing there. They. They still pay, you know, the restaurants still pay protection money. You still see people ha- hanging around on the on street corners watching everybody. So it's a uh, it's a strange experience. Mm. There's simply no way, Ariel, you managed to go to this event and not get yourself into trouble by saying something. I <laughs> <laughs> will see inappropriate tourist look uh, and Rob I suggest you don't take your Oris Bear jumper just in case you end up with an Oris Bear head in your bed that would be <laughs> that would be unfortunate Ariel what have you got in the next week well I'm not really sure uh, there's a bunch of stuff happening in LA when I'm gone I think what a lot of people are excited about is the big um, Omega event which is happening again here in Los Angeles when I'm going to be in Sicily but other members of the blog to watch team will be covering it and speaking with Omega it's supposed to be 
a very significant launch, which is going to have a big, you know, uh, just a big, you know, effect on their then their next year. I think they're they're recoming out with an entire product line or something new. So um, okay. uh, that's also coming at the end of of the month. Uh, it's going to be, I think, very very hectic until mid. Uh, mid-December and then pretty early on in January, I anticipate the, the watch cycle is going to start again real fast. Are you, over in, uh, are you in New York for watch time and um, the wind-up watch fair? Because I'm going to be there for that. I won't be there. We have other team members being there. I have, you know, I have, I, I just, I can't be as, as many places right now. I want to be though. I want to be. And David, where are you the next week? I'm uh, traveling for something super secret at the end of the week. I'm, I'm not even allowed to share it with anybody. It's, it's, I've signed my life away <laughs> in an NDA. So yeah, yeah it's, it's going to be fun. So it's always great to speak. It's always great to speak to you too. David, you're going somewhere secret. Ario, you're going uh, a watch launch that no one's told you about yet. It's always great to get that kind of quality information off the pair of you <laughs> that's what we get that but that's what we get from the brands and and david's being humble but he's going for some performance enhancement uh procedures he's going to become a super person he's going to you know jump oh, 20 yeah. feet yeah they do those that's they, what yeah exactly yeah. in zurich to the best only the best for me right <laughs> well ariel uh, there's an old billy Connolly joke which basically ends up as you can go and google it Rob may be familiar with it, but the last line of it is Volvo for sale. So we will finish this uh, show by saying thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, thank you for joining us, Rob. Safe trips. Thank you, David and Ariel. And for anyone that's interested, Ariel has an Audi for sale. So say goodbye, everybody. <laughs> goodbye. Bye, everyone. Bye, bye. bye. bye.